I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2004 with writer Richard Thiem talking about his book, Islands in the Clickstream. That title also refers to a column which Richard Thiem has written since the mid-1990s commenting on technology in our modern world. Incidentally, Richard Thiem, in the middle of last year, 2021, released a new book called The Best of Islands in the Clickstream, a collection of some of his more recent columns. Here is that interview now from 2004. I hope you enjoy it. I remember uh, my dear departed uh, colleague Bill Guy uh, talking uh, at great length and with great enthusiasm about an interview which he conducted uh, at a point when I was out of town with someone by the name of Richard Thiem. And uh, Bill had actually a little bit of trouble just succinctly summarizing what the two of them had talked about and exactly what made it such a compelling conversation. But uh, that's something that, uh, that I never forgot. And in a little treasure trove of interviews, which Bill made a point of preserving uh, in that little basket of tapes, one of those interviews indeed was this conversation with uh, Richard Thiem, who indeed is uh, one of the most perceptive commentators uh, before the public today when it comes uh, to issues of technology and society and how, how all of us sort of consume technology or are affected by it and the way in which technology is, is altering the way we live and the way we uh, connect with one another. Uh, Richard Thiem has gathered together uh, a number of, of columns and reflections into a fascinating book called Islands in the Clickstream, Reflections on Life in a Virtual World. Uh, and uh, I'm really grateful that uh, Richard Thiem can join us for a few minutes to talk about what has uh, drawn him into this uh, particular realm, his fascination with technology, and uh, more important than that, the way in which technology uh, shapes us perhaps as much as we shape it. Richard Thiem, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. We're really glad that you can be here. Just in a nutshell, first of all, tell us how this book was put together and, and where these various columns and reflections uh, come from. Well, like most things in my life, it starts off by accident and then it becomes more intentional. I was asked uh, about eight or nine years ago by the Wisconsin Professional Engineers Association to do a monthly column for their print magazine that went to members, and I did three or four or five of them. And then I checked to see how they were doing. People really liked them. I started with how to live in cyberspace and dreams engineers have and games engineers play and power generation. Relating technology to the shape of our lives, our social and cultural and psychological experience of life as it is being changed by technology. And so I decided to use this new thing, the Internet, to offer them to friends. And, and a number of people signed up for it, and I started sending them out on a regular basis by email. Uh, fortunately, uh, USA Today uh, found my website with those archived on it and spotlighted it as a USA Today site of the day. Now, it tells you how early on in the Internet it was because a site of the day means there were about 365 of them in a year, and there are probably as many uh, 365 sites coming on board every 10 minutes hmm. these days. Uh, but at, the, at that time, you could still do that. Uh, so a lot of people found me and signed up, and one thing led to another. You know, E.B. White said that... Uh, 
It's no wonder how complicated things get, what with one thing leading to another. <laughs> and so uh, that's the way it happened. I started sending them out, and, and it grew and grew. And, and sooner or later, I had uh, readers in at least 60 countries that I know of, and they were being picked up and published on websites and then in print and translated in other languages. And uh, how they've really functioned in cyberspace was uh, because my prior life is both a professor of literature, teacher of literature, and a Episcopal priest, is they were opinion pieces or inside pieces, but they're also kind of sermons, secular sermons, one of the reviews on Amazon calls it, uh, because there's a moral center that I'm always searching for, which is how we can remain most fully human in light of what is happening to us uh, by virtue of this transformative engine called communication information technology. And so the community that gathered around them in cyberspace, I, I like to think like uh, people around a fire in the dark woods, mm. uh, were looking for illumination. And I didn't know that they would be printed or not. Uh, I, my, you know, honestly, my expectation was that I would die, and then someone would say, hey, you know, these are too good to lose. We ought to publish them. Because I had approached a number of publishers, and uh, a number of them, like um, Doubleday and Penguin and, and Putnam and the like, said these are really well-written and, and very timely, but it's not quite right for our list. Mm. And, and they were, of course, right. Uh, they said it would get lost on our list. Well, that's the nature of commercial publishing. And it's the nature of doing something new, which these really were. They're a genre that hadn't been classified before that made me say, well, just keep writing. You've got your readers. You have your response. And that builds a platform for my professional speaking, which is what I do as a, uh, for a living. And to my surprise, Singris Publishing, a technology publisher, approached me at a conference about uh, eight months ago and said, do you have something we could bring out? We're like, we want to go in a new direction where it's not just hard technology. And one day later, they had the proposal. Two days later, I had the contract. Mm. And six months later, the book is in print and doing well and, and, and getting a good response from people who, who want to somehow connect the way they know they have been being changed by all this to the deeper concerns of their lives, the ultimate concerns of their lives, their mm. values. Uh, their their ways constructing reality, their spirituality, their their deeper beliefs and understanding of who they are in the universe, and that's that's what I try to point toward. I try to be a finger pointing at the moon. I'm certainly hmm. no moon. Have you always been so interested in technology? I'm, and I'm wondering about earlier in your life when, of course, technology was still there and and changing, but of course, nowhere near at the pace that it uh, seems to change now or the way in which it seems to impact people's lives. I mean, uh, but did, did technology intrigue you back in the days when an electric can opener was the latest thing? Well, I don't remember when the electric can opener came on the commercial market. It's like saying, you remember the first uh, Ford? Uh, <laughs> no, I, I do remember the uh, first color TV in our high-rise in mm. uh, Chicago because my mother won it in a raffle. And all the kids in the building came over, and we uh, sat there uh, tuning the hint and the tint and hue buttons until the letters, the show of shows, turned from white to yellow, and people burst spontaneously into applause. I remember <laughs> that moment. I think I've always been. It's a great, great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that question, and and the answer is when I think about it, yes. Uh, when I was a kid, I was very, very interested in uh, ham radio and amateur radio. And I remember as a very young kid sitting with uh, my Halicrafters S85 or my allied night space banner, a home-built kit before that, uh, fine-tuning. It wasn't digital then. You didn't just punch in a number and let the electronics do the work. You 
you tune that button. I can still see myself at 3, 4 in the morning when the skip was good, just tuning, turning that big button and suddenly holding that signal and listening to a ham in, in Ethiopia or, or somebody in, in the Middle East or somebody in Russia hmm. uh, and listening routinely to um, uh, the Soviet Union, voice, was it Radio Moscow? And, of course, everybody's heard Quito, Ecuador, HCJB, most powerful station in the hemisphere. Uh, listen to BBC then. And now when I look back on it, an awful lot of people weren't getting their news from Russia and from England. And, in fact, they would send mm. me things in the mail that I remember getting a postcard from the from the government saying you've been sent communist propaganda. We're sure that you didn't ask for this. But if you would like to receive it, please put your signature on the postcard and return it to the House on American Activities Committee or whatever. Mm. And, of course, you didn't return the postcard. So I guess when I look back, I was always interested in the use of technology to extend your reach, to go as far as you could, to understand the depths and complexities of things, and to reach out and hear other voices. And then in the 70s, when the Viking lander uh, settled on Mars, I remember sitting with a video ham, and we watched Spellbound as almost pixel by pixel, so slowly the signal came back and began to paint the first picture of the desert of Mars on the monitor. Mm. And I remember my, my, uh, my astonishment and joy and deep yearning, which has yet to be fulfilled, to go there. Uh, I, I saw Mars suddenly as, uh, as as real as the desert in Nevada next door where I lived, lived then in Utah. And I wanted to climb Olympus Mons. I wanted to go into the depths of Alice Marineris. And suddenly uh, Mount Everest and the Grand Canyon were, were just a little pit and a little pimple. Hmm. Uh, compared to what Mars had to offer. And and so that was the use of technology to extend our cognition, our senses, and for me to stimulate our imaginations in, in a way that takes me uh, far, far, far out to the, uh, to the edges. Hmm. One of the things that, of course, is so intriguing about the way technology is different now from, for instance, when I went to college, I graduated in 1982, and when I went to college... Uh, absolutely nobody owned their own computer. Right. And if you were a computer science major, there was such a thing, you went to the computer science lab, which I never stepped step foot in. And and at least as far as I could tell as an outsider, although anyone who worked with computers was sort of destined to a solitary existence by and large, or that's certainly how it seemed. And computers were not used to connect with other computers, let alone with other people sitting at computers. And now, of course, computers have advanced to the, to the stage where, where now it is not at all a solitary uh, undertaking the way that it once might have been. No, no, it, it's changed us dramatically. Uh, one of the consequences, as, as you just indicated, is that uh, you know throughout 20th century, one of the evolution evolutionary ideas of science was the reality of relationships regardless of what was in relationship one thing to another Mm. the structure of relationships and networks redefine what it means to be human by the fact of putting us in a different relationship to each other and that's why information energy power all flow differently in a network than they do in other kinds of structures like hierarchical structures and uh, this has all come since then in 1982 83, that's when I uh, first bought an Apple II for my son, and that's when I had an insight into what distributed computing would mean. But you can go back as far as the 50s. Uh, J.C.R. Licklider, a uh, great psychologist connected with the early ARPA uh, and government uh, uh, development of computing, uh, in 57, I believe it was, he told a group of world-class scientists, you know, the day is going to come when we connect computers to each other and they're going to talk to one another. 
and they all just made uh, all kinds of derogatory gestures. And these were world-class people who couldn't grasp what he knew very well. Uh, at that time, computers were mainframes tended by high priests behind thick glass and air-cooled rooms, uh, not something anybody could get. And, and, mm. and that's why hackers evolved the way they were. When, in 82, 83, when you were in, in college, what you're talking about, if somebody wanted to know about computing, you didn't just buy a computer. You couldn't get on the Internet, which existed, but in a rudimentary form. You had to, you had to hack. Uh, if you wanted to know how Unix uh, mm. workstation worked, you couldn't afford $50,000 or whatever for one. You had to hack into one. Uh, you wanted Internet time, you had to go through your university, and that meant you had to figure out how to get on uh, without having to pay for it. Uh, in other words, the environment, the cognitive space of early computing invited what we call hacking because it created a world without boundaries. And the big challenge was how do you live, how do you free the mind, how do you live vibrantly in a world that has no walls? Hmm. And that's what hackers really were exploring. And then, of course, there's really no justification for that today because anybody can buy all the Internet time they want. They can buy a workstation with so much power for next to nothing. Uh, they can build their own network. So hacking has changed as well. Right. It's become a, quite a different thing. In fact, you you talk in one of your columns about how uh, you really want us to be careful about our, our terms. You like to uh, differentiate between hackers and script kiddies. Now, that's a term I'm not acquainted with. What, what do you mean uh, by the difference? Well, in the 60s at MIT, when hacking began to, to be used uh, kind of, uh, I would say, ubiquitously in that subculture, uh, to me, a really ingenious kludge, uh, a really clever way of, of making something happen that wasn't predictable or conventional. Uh, because a, a hacker really is somebody who looks at an artifact that's been built, whether it's an intellectual construction or a physical one, and ask this question, uh, not what was it made to do, but what can I make it do? Uh, mm. What is there possible, latent? And that means you have to see deeper than the structure as presented to you. Often engineers who build these things don't even understand themselves what the thing can be made to do. When the first uh, Sony PlayStation was invented, the engineers brought in a bunch of 10-year-olds and watched them play behind one-way glass and were astonished at the things they invented to do with the PlayStation that they themselves had not designed it to do, mm. but now they understood it. Uh, it could be made to do. So hackers are people who, like all great scientists, have passion, uh, obsessiveness, and, and daring. Those are the characteristics mm. of all great scientists. Uh, but as the space has evolved, uh, then the creativity, the originality, the ingenious hack uh, became less important in the distributed public computing space, and people began to automate the functions that previously you had to be very, very good to write the script or program to do yourself. So now there, there's an acceleration in the availability of scripts, that is, pre-written instructions, which you can access, download, and execute without having any understanding what it is they do. It's kind of like if you bought a first car and you knew how to get under the hood and make it work, compared to just buying a car and all you know how to do is turn on the key. Uh, and a, a complex machine works, but you don't know how it works. Well, it's the same with script kiddies. They're, they're kids, and kiddies is derogatory because it implies a lack of knowledge or understanding of what they're doing, and concomitantly often the lack of ethical understanding of what they're doing comes piggyback on that. And so they down <coughs> excuse me, download scripts, run them, <coughs> can do powerful things with them, exploits, flaws in all, all the major systems, but especially the Microsoft products, are widely known. Uh, many more are not widely known, but are distributed in small select groups. And using those exploits or flaws before they become patched 
uh, if patched, they ever become. Uh, let's lets you do all kinds of mischievous and, and sometimes uh, negative things. So real hackers have a great deal of disdain for script kitties because mm. they're they're vandals, they're they're graffiti sprayers, they're they're uh, bra- uh, be breaking and entering people, they're they're burglars, but but they're not ingenious, creative, original mm. people. So it's not that hackers necessarily are any more well behaved. But it's it, at least they did it the hard way. It's, that's right. It's that's right. it's like I I can play pieces of music in different keys, but I sort of resent the people that sit at an electronic keyboard and press a button, which transposes it for them. Right. That would be sort of a parallel. Right. Uh, that's image, exactly I guess. right. That's hmm. exactly right. We're speaking today with uh, Richard Thiem, and the uh, title of his very thought-provoking book is called Islands in the Clickstream, Reflections on Life in a Virtual World. Back to the uh, question that we kind of bumped against uh, briefly earlier, and that is of how, how computers can, in a sense, uh, connect us in ways that we would not have been um, connected before. I'm part of a listserv of opera fans, and uh, I think for many of us, and probably others on the group more so than me personally, something like this has been such a powerful thing because uh, if you are maybe the only opera fan in some tiny little town in North Dakota, uh, or let's say you're an 18-year-old boy in some little town in North Dakota and you like opera, uh, this is a way for you not to be alone in that passion. And I suppose there are countless other uh, examples of how this world has has uh, made such a difference for people like that uh, f- for both good and ill uh, that's the power of distributed computing it it, uh, it it pushes power and presence in into the hands of the person who's right up there at the interface by which I mean uh, it's changed our sense of who we are from a bounded individual isolated self to a node in a network and mm. that's <clears throat> it's kind of like uh, now, I think a lot of the problems that are discussed today, uh, whether privacy or intellectual property or security, uh, are a function of not knowing whether we're looking at the self as an individual, you know, post-Renaissance bounded uh, boundary encased self, or whether we're looking at the quote-unquote individual as a node in a network with semi-porous or totally fluid and open boundaries, whose existence is determined by the free flow of information and energy in and out of, uh, of the larger system of which they're merely... Um, a, a part. It, it's like uh, particle and wave. You know, if you look at light as a particle, you get particle. If you look at it as a wave, you get wave. How you set up the experiment determines how you see the thing. Well, if you look at an individual from a legal point of view as a, um, a, a person with a boundary, then they have a right to privacy. But if you look at them as a node in a network, you realize not only do they not have a right to privacy, they don't have any privacy, can't it's, have. It's not possible. No. No, they're radiating information by virtue of being connected to a network to which they are completely transparent. Hmm. <clears throat> so uh, that's what has created the possibility of uh, identifying and linking yourself in these networks like the Opera Lovers hmm. Network hmm. and uh, transcending uh, space and time, being hmm. part of a presence to one another uh, that, that literally didn't exist. The downside, of course, is distributing computing enables non-state terror because the structures of a society often t- emulate the shape of, of its information and communication technologies. And so non-state terror uh, or non-state entities uh, that do terror or, or cartels uh, or, on the other side, uh, transglobal corporations uh, no longer are beholden 
to the countries in which they used to live or in which they originated because those countries, just like the individual that I was talking about, are dissolving. The boundaries around them are becoming semi-porous, and new non-state entities are emerging, which are like great clouds of nebulous power, because we don't mm. know how they relate to this former thing that we all took for granted, a country, a nation, a state of which we were a citizen, but which are in fact, in a way, in terms of power, at least, passing away. So nation-states emerged you know, in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries as appropriate ways to put a boundary around uh, the level of economic and political and social activity that we had. And now, in fact, that level of activity in distributed networks, such as you identified for your opera lovers, uh, it also works for al-Qaeda and, and anybody else with a common bond, uh, that's kind of fundamentally undermining the structure of geopolitics and new things are emerging. And we're mm. living in this transitional time, which, as I say, is why it makes it so difficult. If you don't know how you're looking at the network or how you're looking at the structure of power or the organizational structure, it's true for business, too. If you think it's a hierarchical, top-down system and you can draw it on a, on a, on a chart with boxes and dotted lines and straight lines connecting the boxes then you're frozen in that way of conceptualizing or mapping the world. Hmm. I suppose it's that we are we are more in the world than we used to be and other people are all over the world in That's a way. Right. I mean in a sense in a sense Al Qaeda is here. That's right. That's right. They are here. And um, and and they're here because what we used to think were boundaries keeping people out uh, are easy to penetrate. We say, gee, in America, anybody can kind of come in, come over the Canadian border, come over the Mexican border, and then reassemble into a cell. Same problem with computer security. I saw an application the other day. It uses a Java applet to attack a firewall. Now, it doesn't attack the firewall frontally because it would lose. Firewall is designed to defend the perimeter of the network. What it does is break itself up into component parts that aren't identifiable as a program, slip through the firewall as information, and then with a program that's kind of like a cornerstone for reassembly, it reprograms or reassembles itself into the program on the other side of the firewall. So it's a Trojan horse that breaks itself into mm. pieces, goes through the walls, the holes in the walls, and then comes back together again on the other side. And uh, <coughs> what this means is, <coughs> excuse me, as you were saying, uh, we are absolutely present to one another, always. It, and, and this is, of course, just what mystics have said for a long time. But now there's some data for it. Hmm. Is this something we can live with? Because I think there, there, there are some people that, that wonder if, if this ultimately is the way we should live with this kind of, can we live with this kind of connectedness uh, when there are, uh, entities in the world that that hate us or that we hate um, can can we survive this this level of connectedness or do we need to somehow retreat from this well that that's the, that was the right next question based on what I was saying I mean that causes anxiety and apprehension I mean uh, but I'd like to drive things down to a slightly more fundamental level of what are the assumptions buried in the question you ask and the question was can we and that's where I would stop. Uh, what do you mean by we? Because the mm. identification <laughs> of ourselves, our identity, that's what's fundamentally in transformation now. And that's what I find so fascinating. Uh, who we think we are is fundamentally being transformed, not obliterated, but transformed. But to go through a period of transformation genuinely, you go through what I call a, a zone of annihilation. 
in which everything you thought yourself to be, who you thought yourself to be, is really called into question. And you must be willing to enter into that space of free fall. The Zen adepts call it uh, a nightmare in daylight, mm. uh, in, in which monsters, i.e. yourself, show show up in a form that you had never before seen. And if you go through that period, your your psyche will restructure. Can we go through this? Absolutely. We are going through it. And we, that is humankind in, in tribes and organizational structures of the past, have gone through worse uh, many, 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 many uh, major transitions in the past. We're about, what, the 25th or 26th identifiable civilization. Well, each one of those civilizations had an end uh, in order for the next one to begin. And we're, uh, we're so uh, provincial, right, in time and space, in, in how we think we dominate the time. But, you know, America is a couple hundred years old, and I was listening to a series of lectures on ancient Egypt. And when it came to the time between the first and second dynasties, uh, we don't have much information. Things kind of dissolved. And then the Second Dynasty started a couple hundred years later. And he just pointed out that this couple hundred years is equal to the entire history of the United States, and yet it's just kind of a dark blip with parentheses around it between mm. the First and Second Dynasties of a 3,000-year culture. We're children, and, mm. and humankind, in terms of leaving our planet and exploring our environment, uh, I think we're like toddlers coming down the steps for the first time. We haven't even gone around the block. We're We're just extending ourselves through our solar system. It's been dramatic from our point of view and, and wonderful, but all of this is going to fundamentally change human identity, as is genetic engineering, uh, when we can alter our, uh, I call it our subjective space, the field of subjectivity which we inhabit as if it is the horizon of possibility, when we can alter that with subtlety and finesse chemically, both inside as well as ingesting chemicals from without, when we go transplanetary, and these technologies transform us. So the, your question is a good one. Can we survive? Yes. But who we will be on the other side is not the we who left the shore to begin the voyage. Mm. The we who arrives will be a very different sense of we. In the meantime, if, if I can just pull it back from, from sort of the cosmic dimensions, tell me, tell me how someone should react with something as work a day as the bank that once upon a time the bank was this building and your money was there physically maybe in that bank or to some extent anyway it was yeah we thought it was and uh, <laughs> and uh and now now our banks don't have walls at all no uh, our banks are kind of everywhere but if 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 we get to a scenario where where uh nobody's money is safe uh do we do we start rethinking about well maybe our banks should not be part of this world of complete and utter connectedness maybe we have to retreat back to something more tangible right uh, that that would be uh, that would be the the the, the fear based default position which is oh my gosh we're not safe but what do we mean by safe there are two things there i work in security a lot i do a lot of speeches for uh, security organizations. I'm keynoting MITSEC in December for the Middle East IT Security Conference in Dubai, United Arab Emirates. And I was in Israel in May with Steve Ballmer keynoting Microsoft Israel's conference. Uh, so the, the banks are ubiquitous. Uh, safety is clearly a function of feeling safe enough to function. Mm. In, in, in other words, there's a difference between real safety, i.e. information assurance, or in the sense of defense, bombs not going off, 
and the feeling that we are safe. Homeland Defense is a good example. It is focused at least as much on helping people to feel safe or try to mm. uh, as on changing the high the level of security in in the country. With, well, with banks. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, the the bank in our heads is often still mapped to the physical kind of banking that evolved prior. Right. Uh, but even when I've worked with banks, I, I remember confronting some executives off-site because they all talked about the bank as an obstruction to what they wanted to do. And I said, where is the bank? And they realized the bank that inhibited them is the internalized map of banking, which was in their heads because it wasn't on-site. It's, uh, it's the same with banking. The The fact is there's a lot of money being stolen out there through extortion and, and, um, and chicanery. Uh, and it's not the kids who are doing it. These are highly organized, highly sophisticated uh, gangs, uh, global, uh, often linked to one another. Uh, uh, Russian mafia is a big player in that from my limited understanding of it. Uh, money is lost. Is so much money lost that it undermines the banking system? Well, not yet. I talked to somebody, a brokerage system, a, a brokerage investment house guy, and they had lost $600 million in a, in a hit. That sounds like a lot of money. But given what they lose in other ways, it was a cost of doing business. Mm. So what has become clear for banking and finance generally is that it's a question of risk management. Uh, money doesn't know who owns it. Money only knows whether it's moving. And if it's moving, it's doing its job. And so it, it may be moving because it's being laundered, and it may be moving because it's part of a global transaction. But so long as the collusion between light and dark, between citizens and criminals, and you know that when you look closely, it becomes hard to distinguish citizens and criminals. So long as it does not fundamentally undermine the ability of a global economy to function, uh, then it's manageable. And if it's manageable, then it's a, a risk that can be tolerated and borne as we adapt to how to do it. So it's just like saying, uh, boy, once we put money in central depositories, why did Willie Sutton rob the bank? Because that's where the money was. Why do people go to cyberspace? Nothing's changed because mm. that's where the money is. But uh, are you impaired? Can you use your debit or credit card? Absolutely. Mm. Uh, is, is the world reasonably stable from a financial point of view? See, that's one of the primary objectives of, of terror is to do two things, undermine the belief of a people in its government to protect them and undermine and degrade the economy. The expectation is the next big attack, if it does come, they've tried many times and they've been stopped, according to my sources, so far, uh, is to try to undermine the economy. And in fact, 9-11, this is not a secret. If there had been one Volkswagen packed with explosives at the right place in Wall Street, it could have fundamentally brought down the ability of the financial system to exchange money. But they didn't have a car there. Well, they've gotten better. We've gotten better. Uh, it's a cat and mouse spy mm. versus spy game. I guess that's part of what uh, you know when you tell stories about heinous new viruses that you know sneak through the firewall and then reconnect and so on. Which of course that plays out in all kinds of different ways too. But uh, I suppose at the same time that we hear a really frightening story about that, there is also the story of good guys and good women yeah. that are that are on the case. Absolutely. That are that are working to to help sustain this system which we have created and which for good or occasional ill is with us. That's correct. And uh, my understanding from the work I've done uh, in Washington or talking to people who are closer to it than I am is that after 9-11 the gloves came off. Uh, we, you know, you have to think about just uh, from the intelligence point of view. 
theoretically, the uh, FBI does internal, the CIA does external. CIA can't listen in to people in this country. Uh, we have FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance <laughs> Act, which enables us to, uh, from a secret court, get a warrant if probable cause exists to listen in to foreign nationals. Uh, but when you look at what the technology has done, just as I was saying in terms of boundaries, who is local and who is distant is Im- literally impossible to distinguish. The sources of the flow of information that are intercepted or bent to come to us in the first place uh, are, are multifaceted, and the streams merge. And you cannot say, oh, this is an American and this is a foreign national uh, with, with the kind of clarity often that you used to be able to. That requires, therefore, policy and the implementation of policy. In other words, how is somebody going to use the information that they get? Well, in the meantime, it means the distinctions we used to make between uh, foreign and domestic intelligence uh, are functionally obliterated to a large degree. That's what bringing down the stovepipes and the silos and all that is about. It's sharing information. Well, what does that really mean? It means uh, organizational structures that were chartered not to talk to each other are now um, uh, feel uh, powered uh, to talk to each other. Inside the government bureaucracy, there is a sense of permission. Uh, always err on the side of uh, get permission later. Uh, the, the urgency of the mission imperative, counterterror, as it has been defined, uh, gives people the belief that that's what they, they need to do. So my understanding is that, yes, we, do, we, we can't kill people here, but we can kill them elsewhere, and we can turn them over to our allies, and we're in bed with some of the people who we think are enemies. People would generally be surprised, I think, to learn how it really works down in the sewers where everybody's so covered with muck that we are indistinguishable mm. from one another. Uh, no, we can't torture somebody, but we can turn them over to an Egyptian or a Jordanian and say, go to work on this guy. Uh, and, and they do. So, again, the functional boundaries between what we think of in this country as uh, inhibitions on our behavior that, that we love to believe make us different from anybody else are, in fact, an illusion, a comforting illusion uh, sustained in order to keep us uh, snug in the belief that we're fundamentally different. But then sometimes when people overseas react negatively to what we in fact do, not what we say or believe about ourselves, but what we do, we're so surprised. Well, that's the way it is. Mm. Well, some discomforting uh, insights in this really extraordinary book. And, you know, we bandy about the term thought-provoking uh, a, a bit too blithely sometimes, but that really says it says it well i think this book really gets you thinking about life what it means to be a human being and the way in which the technology that surrounds us the way that that changes who we are and how we see ourselves and each other the book again is called islands in the clickstream reflections on life in a virtual world published by syngress and its author richard theme <laughs> 